0: Thank you Scott. Can we thank the worship team today? So there are a a couple of ways that I think we're unusually blessed for a small to medium congregation and uh, our mission footprint is one but the quality of worship talent is certainly another. Uh, For those of you who may not know me, I'm Zeke Swift, I'm one of the elders here Uh, The Bosagers, uh, the whole crowd, are in Florida for their annual family summit. And in fact, tonight is missions night. They're going to have dinner with David and Carlene Heath. Uh, It's always a pleasure for me to be able to share God's word with you, but it's a special privilege for me to be able to wrap up our series in the Sermon on the Hill. You know, I've, I've often thought if... A believer, if I could master just 10 pages of Scripture. Uh, the first four would be the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is the inauguration of Jesus' earthly ministry. And it's an introduction to kingdom living the way He came to teach it and to demonstrate it. And then I'd add to that what's called the Last Supper Discourse, which is John chapters 13 to 17. That's another five pages. And this is the conclusion of Jesus' ministry. It's kind of the last big discussion he has with the disciples before his crucifixion. And it's about kingdom living after his departure, with major emphasis on the indwelling direction and empowering of the Holy Spirit. And to that, I think I'd add the 23rd Psalm, recognizing that in John 10, Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. Well, we can't do all of that today, so let's pray and see if we can do a good job with these last few verses of the Sermon on the Mount. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we quiet our hearts at this moment. We seek to see your face. We seek to hear your voice. Lord Jesus, help us to recognize what it would have been like to follow you and to sit in the crowd that heard this message such that at the end they were astonished. Lord Jesus, may we be astonished at your words, and thank you for speaking with authority. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. So as we begin to wrap this up, we ought to identify what the context is. And the context begins in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. And it says, now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is open for business. The kingdom of heaven is accessible. And along with that message, Jesus began to demonstrate healing power. It says, And he went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel or the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And the teaching and the healing attracted crowds. And it says, And great crowds followed him from Galilee <clears throat> excuse me, and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. And, and keep in mind, the walk from Jerusalem to Galilee was six days if you were fast and could take up to two weeks. So Jesus had quite a following. And depending upon your perspective, either Jesus set up this teachable moment or seized this teachable moment... And, it, and the word says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. And what did he teach? <clears throat> he taught about the kingdom. And, you know, there's a, uh, a, a website for Homeland Security that's, call, that's called Know Before You Go. And so you can figure out wherever you're going in the world and go to know before you go and you get the good news and the bad news. Uh, I don't look at that for when I go to South Africa, uh, but Dennis and I both look at it carefully when we're going to Nigeria, know before you go. So this presentation of Jesus, for those of you who are academically inclined, think of it as Kingdom 101. For those of you who are business inclined, think of this as the executive summary of the kingdom. For those of you who are politically inclined, Steve Sessler said that this was the kingdom manifesto, a public declaration of policy and aims. And I was going to include maybe the kingdom for dummies, except I don't think Jesus thinks any of us are dummies, so I'll leave that out. So now... Let's review what's in the presentation. And for those of you who have Bibles, please get them out and turn to chapter 5 of Matthew. For those of you who have your Bibles on your cell phones, get them out and get to Matthew chapter 5. And if there are some here with neither a Bible nor a Bible on your phone, raise your hand and our wonderful ushers will bring you a Bible. There's one here, Mark. <clears throat> so, here's the review. Jesus starts out with a discussion of counterintuitive blessedness. Who's in and who's out? Who's in are the mourners, the meek, the unusual people with an appetite for righteousness the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and the persecuted. This is a bottom-up movement. This is not for the world's rock stars. Second, the citizens of the kingdom are called to have expansive influence. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. And we've all heard the sermons about the multidimensional nature of salt. It's flavoring, it's preserving, it's healing. It was even currency. People were paid in salt. And that's where we get the expression, worth his salt. And not only that, we're called to be the light of the world. And Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And it's interesting to note that he did not say that they may hear your good words. But he said, see your good works. And what he's speaking about here is an observably different life. Maybe as John is perceived at work with an observably different life. And the last dimension of know before you go is excessive righteousness. And we have to understand the concept of excessive righteousness in order to understand the structure of Jesus' presentation. Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of your religious leaders, you will never enter the kingdom. Now imagine sitting on the grass, on the hill, listening to Jesus talk as a faithful Jew. And Jesus stands up and says, Look, think of all the people that you respect spiritually. Your righteousness needs to exceed theirs. How would you feel? Well, Jesus doesn't leave them in the dark. In fact, the essence of the rest of the talk is what it means or examples of what it means to have our righteousness exceed that of the religious leaders of the time and maybe even the religious leaders of today. Instead of anger, reconcile. Instead of having lustful intent, control your body. Instead of divorcing, be faithful in marriage. Instead of having oaths so that I really know when I can take you at your word, let your yes be yes and your no be no. You've heard people say, I don't get mad, I get even. Okay, That's retaliation. And Jesus says, no, instead of retaliation... Turn the other cheek. Give the cloak. Go the second mile and maybe the third and fourth. Instead of hating our enemy, he says, Love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. And he stops here for a minute and said, Look, here's your example in this. Be like our heavenly Father who makes the sun rise on the evil and the good who sends rain on the just and unjust. Be holy. Be set apart as God is holy. Instead of stinginess, give to the one who begs. Lend to the one who wants to borrow. Instead of doing your spiritual disciplines for the acclaim of others, give Pray and fast in secret for the approval of your Father alone. Instead of laying up treasures on earth, lay up treasures in heaven. We talk here about the Luke twelve thirty three account. It's Luke chapter 12, verse 33. And, and often that's done in terms of money. But there are lots of other treasures that are acts and our works lay up in heaven. Instead of being anxious about our life, our food, our drink, our body, our house, our car, our boat, or our wardrobe, ahead of these things, seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And the promise is he'll take care of the things that we really need. Instead of judging others, deal with the major issues in my own life in the hopes that I can somehow be useful in helping someone else address the minor issue in theirs. Instead of attempting to be self-reliant or feigning self-reliance, ask, seek, and knock out of dependence on God and interdependence with others. Instead of expecting others to treat me as the center of the universe, treat others the way I want to be treated. Instead of being taken in by false prophets and the latest Fads of doctrine test the character of prophets by the fruit of their lives. Instead of saying, Lord, Lord, doing the will of the Father in heaven. Fifteen examples. It's not a comprehensive list, but fifteen examples of what it means to have righteousness exceeding that of the scribes and Pharisees. And what's the common thread? The common thread is that our inner character trumps outward appearance every day in the kingdom. And if together we got just that much right, what a difference it would make in our inner lives. What a difference it would make in our families, in our workplaces, In our neighborhoods, even in church, and in the world around us. Fifteen precepts. How hard can that be, right? Well, that brings us to the conclusion of the talk. Now, I have a question for you. Who is the best teacher you ever heard? No, 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 no. Jesus, absolutely. Would, would we conclude that not only is he a good teacher, but he is an exemplary teacher? And what he knows is that what's said last is the thing that's most likely to be remembered. Speakers today say, end your presentation with a bang. And Jesus concludes with two devices, a contrast and a word picture. The contrast is wise builders and foolish builders. And the word picture is a house built on a foundation of rock and a house built on a foundation of sand. And so... The wise person hears these words of mine, hears these words of Jesus, and does them. That's the English Standard Version. And let's explore a couple of other translations just to get the sense of meaning. In the New International Version, it says he hears the words and puts them into practice. The New American Standard Bible says, hears and acts on them. The New Living Translation says, listens to my teaching and follows it. And the message says, work these words into your life. That's the wise man. But the foolish person does hear these words but doesn't do them, ESV, Hears these words but does not put them into practice, NIV. Hears these words but does not act on them, NASB. Listens to my teaching but does not obey it, New Living Translation. And does not work these words into their life. Do we get the idea here that what matters? Do we get the idea from Jesus' conclusion that what matters is the doing? Yes, hearing plays a role. We shouldn't diminish it. It's necessary, but it's not sufficient. Well, is this concept of hearing and doing just kind of a one-off for Jesus? He just happened to think of it at, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Well, let's jump to Matthew chapter 28. And this is the last talk, essentially, before his ascension. And, and we call it the Great Commission. I, I think anytime we kind of capture something like that in just two words, Great Commission, we, we tend to dismiss what's inside of it. But this passage, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, is really Jesus' kingdom breakout strategy. This is how he intends to go from a group of 11 and reach the entire world in the same way that a little bit of yeast raises the whole loaf. And so Jesus says, make disciples of me, make apprentices of me. We get that if we do evangelism. Thoroughly immerse them in the nature and the work of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And oh yes, follow the observation of baptism. And the part that we don't get to as well as we ought is when Jesus says, teach them to do what I've taught you to do. In the ESV it says, teach them to observe all that I've commanded. It doesn't mean look at. It means do Teach them to obey. Teach them to observe in the NASB. Teach, them, teach these new disciples to obey in the New Living Translation. Instruct them in the practice of all I have commanded you in the message. So do we see that the last word in Jesus' first act in the discussion on the mountain and the last word of the last act is that what counts is not the knowing of the right things but the doing of them so let's think for a minute about the subject of obedience and we'll take a look at some passages that shed role on the light of obedience in our lives as a kingdom citizen but Isn't it true that obey is a four-letter word? Uh, There's a book that the elders are reading, and you're likely to hear more about it in the new year. It's called The Kingdom Unleashed by Jerry Trousdale. And he tells a little story that I think might be helpful in this case. Uh, Jerry was on an airplane a few years ago when a fellow passenger introduced herself with a lengthy monologue, beginning with her Ivy League credentials, moving on to her ownership of a large consulting company, (laughs) and then throwing in this bombshell, I am Jewish, and I sort of admire Jesus, but I don't like Christians, especially Bible thumpers, them I really hate. So she continued her stream of talk for a few more minutes then paused for a breath and as if she had suddenly become aware of Jerry's presence she added, but what do you do? Anticipating the question Jerry had already been praying for what to say and so he answered I help people discover God in the Bible. Well, that caught her attention and and so he asks about her background and he, and he said can you know can you recite the Shema and uh, you know that's hero Israel the Lord our God the Lord is one you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul with all your might and, and if she really was Jewish she was saying that morning and night and and but he's, he's very gentle I mean he's got his Bible there he could just pull it out and read it to her but he said let's see if we can piece this together so they Piece it together, the two of them. And they get it together. And so then Jerry asks the discovery Bible study question, So if all the things in the Shema are true, how would you obey what you've discovered in this passage? Jerry describes what happens next in his own words. Our conversation had been relaxed and comfortable up to that point. We've been going back and forth and occasionally laughing and frequently pondering together. But she suddenly snapped around to face me directly. Even though we were jammed side by side in airline seats, she snapped right around and she said, I don't do obedience. Very emphatically, like that. Like she was underlining every word. Now, Who does that sound like? Anybody ever have any children? Anybody ever have any grandchildren? And are there any of us that can say there aren't times in our life where we say, I don't do obedience. And for some of us, that's really kind of a constant theme. Well, putting into practice isn't a four letter word. Observe isn't a four letter word. So if you would prefer those things to obey, we can work on that basis. But here are some passages that speak to us about obedience. The first one is in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. And the context here, Deuteronomy, recall, is the second law. So Israel is about to go in the promised land and Moses is kind of recounting the history. Uh, I think probably in hopes that Israel wouldn't make the same mistakes the second time as they had the first. And he says, And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve him with all your heart and soul and to keep the commandments and statues of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. Now in our heart of hearts, do we really believe that what God says is for my good? Or do I really believe that God knows what I would enjoy and what I would like and He is consciously denying me of some dimension of freedom or pleasure? Looking at this another way, I'm wondering if we can all instantaneously think of an example where we learned by painful personal experience That what God said, his commands, his precepts, were actually for our good. And we learned the lesson the hard way. Who would deny that our inner life, our relationships, the sum and substance of our life, would be better by doing what the designer of our lives had to say? Well, let's look at another passage, John fourteen fifteen. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, at first, that sounds like a mother, or maybe a father, manipulating their child. If you really love me, you'll make your bed. If you really love me, you'll put your toys away. If you really love me, you'll come in by midnight, which you're curfew. But that isn't really what Jesus is saying. What he, he is stating a reality that if you love someone, the most logical thing in the world will be to do the thing that pleases them. And what Jesus is saying is that our obedience is a barometer of our love for him if we find him attractive and awesome and wonderful and beautiful, in all respects, it will be our natural inclination to obey him. And if we are in the I don't do obedience mode, We won't feel, it will suggest that we are not very much in love with Jesus. Well, how about John 14, verses 21 to 23? Jesus says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we, dad and me, will come into him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. You know, the words great commission don't... Appear in Scripture, and neither do the words personal relationship. You know, it's kind of a code word. We know people have personal relationships with God. Adam and Eve had a personal relationship. Abraham had a personal relationship. Moses, Samuel, David, the 12, Paul, they had personal relationships. But think about this if you're thinking about Making yourself vulnerable, making yourself known, making your home with someone. Are you more likely to do that with someone who is eager to align with your agenda or with someone who resists you every step of the way? Our relationship with Jesus is built by hearing and doing, hearing and obeying, hearing and seeing, hearing and collaborating, hearing and participating, hearing and being comforted. And the more we do that, the more we are convinced of the existence of God, of His love for us, of His wisdom, of His beauty. And these things become more and more apparent as we adopt his agenda. Well, let's look now at Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 to 26. And Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, back in my college days, when I was first exposed to this, it was kind of laid out as a cataclysmic denial. In fact, we used to talk about deny yourself, which means marry an ugly spouse, buy a one-way ticket to Africa and subsist on monkey eyes. Now, it hasn't turned out that way for me. Those of you who know my wife know that externally and even more internally, she's beautiful. All my tickets to Africa have been two-way tickets. And in fact, I have some favorite foods from my trips to Africa. But I'm, I'm concerned, I'm worried, I'm convinced that this idea of denial is more granular, more uh, textured than this idea of a cataclysmic denial. And I have an example. We have an accomplished cellist in our congregation. Anybody know her name? Haley. all right. And, and she can play with orchestras and she can play with rock bands and she can play by herself. God has given her a gift and she has fanned that gift into flame. And so it might be possible for someone in this congregation to say, Oh, Mrs. Erickson, I would love to play the cello like you do. And Kaylee would say, Well, that's fine because I give lessons. So let's get together and we'll teach you to play the cello. So they have the first lesson and the young lady or the young student, I guess I should say, says, oh, Mrs. Erickson, I, I really don't want to sit that way. I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't want to sit that way. Oh, Mrs. Erickson, ah, it's, unco- I, it's uncomfortable. I really don't want to hold the bow that way. Uh, Mrs. Erickson, I know you're supposed to do that with your fingers, but I don't want to. Mrs. Erickson, really, I know I didn't practice between the last lesson and this, but I only want to play it once, and I either get it right or I don't. And I know I'm here to learn from you, but actually, could you not correct me? Well, eventually, Mrs. Erickson might have to say, Dear, that's all well and good, but unless you deny yourself unless you give up your way of doing it, you may be able to make noise with the cello. But unless you give up your way of doing it and adopt my way of doing it, you will never play the cello like I do. In many respects, that idea of cataclysmic denial, ugly spouse, one-way ticket to Africa, is easier than what Jesus is asking in this. Which is day by day, moment by moment choices to reconcile rather than be angry, to keep my word, to turn the other cheek, to pray for someone I'm at odds with, to take the eight foot two by four out of my own eye so that I might be able to see clearly enough to help someone else with the speck of sawdust in their eye. And finally, let's come back to the passage of the day. Matthew chapter 7, verse 25. And let's read it again. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Can we agree there are storms in life, inevitable storms of life? And we, people in this room, we have it pretty good. Likely, we've never been hungry. But still, there are health issues, and finance issues, and career issues, and there are disappointments, and heartaches, and accidents, and crime there are storms. But do you notice that the bedrock in Jesus' word picture is not Jesus? The bedrock in Jesus' word picture is not His words. Both are necessary, but neither are sufficient. The bedrock in that picture is obedience observing what Jesus said, putting into practice what Jesus teaches. And it's useful to note, particularly as we have more violent storms than seems to be in the past in history, that worrying about the foundation when the storm clouds are on the horizon is probably too late for your beach house. And I would submit to you that trying to catch up on obedience when the storms of life hit is probably too late as well. The message of Jesus' conclusion is that little obediences, one obedience at a time until our character is congruent with kingdom values, is the thing that yields a foundation that will withstand the challenges and the calamities inevitable in this fallen life of ours. So today is a day for the Lord's supper and as Paul explains it in 1 Corinthians 11 there's kind of three parts to it there is an examination part and there is a participation part and there is a proclamation part and with regard to the examination, Paul says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. What does that mean? It means what, we, it, it, it means what we've been saying all along. Jesus declared the kingdom open and ultimately gave up his body and his blood and his life that we might live in the kingdom. And so if we come and don't take into account our obedience, we're guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And so Paul says, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the body and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And here are a couple of questions that might stimulate our examination. When we think about this introduction that Jesus has given us to the kingdom, what does that say to me about God? What does Jesus' introduction to the kingdom say? I'm sorry. What does Jesus' introduction to the kingdom say to me about God? What does the, the Jesus' introduction to the kingdom say to me about me? What does Jesus' introduction to the kingdom say to me? If this discourse is from God, what must I do? And what will I do? And if Jesus' teaching is good news, with whom should I share it? Well, after a few moments for examination... we can take up the Lord's Supper. And I'd ask at this point that the worship team come up and the prayer teams. And Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And this is the third part. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the Lord's table is open. the body of Christ broke